He's not just goodness that is kind of working through providence. But no, God is speaking, he's acting, he's doing. He's the one who brought the plagues. He's the one who's dwelling with them in a tent. That God is there. God is present. God is visible. God is audible. And he is the leader of the people of Israel. He's their lawgiver. He's their judge. He's their king. That this is a very strong focus on the presence of God with his people as an actor, as one who causes action. And so this is so different from most of our stories where we just have good providence in the background, but the people are the actors. Well, in the, in the Torah, God is the actor. He's the hero. He's the one who's there and he's doing things. He's not just orchestrating things behind the scenes. So I want to keep that in mind here with the title, And He Spoke. And he spoke in the wilderness. The wilderness theme started in the book of Exodus as they left Egypt and went into the wilderness of Sinai. And the wilderness theme continued through the book of Leviticus. And the wilderness theme is probably strongest here in the book of Numbers as it covers a period of 37 and a half years, 40 years, from the time that they came out of Egypt and came to Mount Sinai. It starts with them at Mount Sinai just a few months or a year after they left Egypt. And it continues on then to 1406. And you've got that on your handout. So it's a couple of blanks so far, 46 times for and he spoke. And then the date's covered 1445 to 1406. So after God slows things down at Sinai, with the major part of Exodus, Leviticus, and the beginning of Numbers, they finally leave Mount Sinai in the book of Numbers and that's going to carry us then to the outline and the structure of the book. So you come down into part two for outline and structure. And remember that the book of Genesis, it has its own structure based around the Toledot. These are the generations. But then once you get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and even Deuteronomy, these are much more cohesive in their structure. And so even though I give you separate structures that are kind of thematic or geographical structures, you should really be thinking more at this point along the lines of the whole Torah, the structure of the Torah, rather than the structure of the individual parts. You'll see that Numbers is in between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it doesn't have a whole lot of structure like we would normally think of a book. But instead, it's just continuing the story that we started all the way back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And so as we get to the end of our study of the Torah next week or the week after, what we're going to be doing is then looking at the structure of the Torah as a whole. And that's why a lot of people, when they try to analyze the structure of the book of Numbers, they don't come up with a lot. And some people have been critical of the book of Numbers, as you know, there's people in the world who don't like the Bible. And they say it's kind of like a, a junk heap where you know, everything that didn't fit in the other books is thrown in here. And that's disrespectful. That's dishonoring to the Torah. We shouldn't think of any part of the Bible as a junk heap where things just get thrown in. No, there is a structure. There is a purpose. It's a plan. But it's on a, a higher level than just the book because, like I said, this is not really a separate book. It's a part of the whole epic of the Torah. And now an epic, like the Iliad, uh, is a a story that tells about the creation of a nation and the epic hero. 
And so there were epics back in the ancient world, even in the time of Moses, talking about how peoples came to be and how their nation was formed. And that's really what God is doing here with the Torah, is he's showing the epic of how the nation of Israel was formed, the people of God, the nation that belongs to the creator of all things. So you want to think about the structure on that level of the, the whole epic and understand then where this part of it fits into the larger structure. But if you're going to analyze it as an individual book, I gave you the outlines here that are similar to what we've done in the previous books, the geographical outline and the thematic outline. You can kind of take your pick. Do you want to think geographically or do you want to think thematically? And so the geographical outline is very simple. You've got them at Mount Sinai for the first 10 chapters. And then in chapter 10, verse 11, in fact, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Try to remember to keep your nose in the Bible as much as possible. That's important. Uh, see it with our own eyes. So when you come to the middle there of chapter 10, and you read in verse 11, it says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, very specific, you wouldn't give dates like that if you were just making up a story, you know, if you were just writing a, a fictional account of how the people of Israel came about. You would just say, and it came about that they left Mount Sinai, and then they traveled over here. But when it gives you know, specific months, specific dates like this, it's really conveying to you, this is, this is history. This is a, a record of what actually happened. It's not something someone made up 400 years later as a, as a myth. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And it goes on and explains how the cloud then settled down in the wilderness of Paran. And that was the first time that at the command of the Lord by Moses, they set out. And really, you know, when it says at the command of the Lord, that's the key there. Now, by Moses, Moses had been the one that had instructed them. When you see the cloud go up, then you pitch your tents, you, you pick up your tents and you load up your animals and you get ready to follow because we're going to follow the cloud wherever it goes. And here's where you see God as the actor. Moses isn't the one who says, all right, time for us to leave Mount Sinai. No, the cloud comes up off of the tabernacle and the, that's the sign to Moses and all the people, God is moving us to someplace else. So I want you to really catch that emphasis that God is leading the people. In fact, if you come back with me, to chapter 9. Let's uh, read a few verses here in 9, 15 through 23. Just the previous chapter. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, so this is looking back to Exodus, the cloud covered the tabernacle. That's the last chapter in Exodus. The tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it's just reviewing what we've been told before about the cloud and the fire. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, notice a repetition and an emphasis here, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. 
whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Now, here you see an emphasis in the first 10 chapters on the obedience of the people of Israel. And this is an unusual thing. The people of Israel have not uh, shown a lot of tendencies towards obedience, but it's nice to see in the first 10 chapters there's a repeated emphasis that they did. They did obey. Now, that's going to change when we get to chapters 11 and following, but for a short time there's a blessing on obedience here. So anyway, that's to point out the geographical movement from Mount Sinai and how it's really highlighted in the text when you see it there as we read it in chapter 10, verse 11. So then from chapter 10, verse 11 to chapter 22, verse 1 on your outline, you've got them traveling from Sinai to the plains of Moab. And then from the plains of Moab, at the plains of Moab is the last part of the book, if you're looking at it geographically. And then next to the geographical, I put kind of an alternate thematic outline in three parts that kind of somewhat parallels what we have there in the geographical. And the, the first blank there should be order. So there's order among the people. God orders the people in the first 10 chapters. But then the people disobey and there's disorder from chapters 11 through 25. And then in chapters 26 to 36, there's a reordering of the people. So that's one way to think of the book thematically is the order, disorder, reorder type of outline. But the other thematic outline is just looking at the first generation and the second generation. And there you would divide it from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 25, verse 18, and then in chapter 26, verse 1, to the end of the book is the second generation. In fact, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 26, verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward. Now, if you've been reading through the book of Numbers, like, oh, that sounds familiar. That's exactly how the book started. So it's kind of like we're going back to the beginning. God ordered everything, and then the people of Israel rebelled and fell into disorder, and so God judged them, and the first generation dies. Now the second generation, time to number them. And that's the book of Numbers, if you like that title. Kind of the first half and the second half starts with the numbering of the book. All right, so then that leads us to the themes and the purpose of the book. And while we're looking at the themes and the purpose, or before we do that, I thought I'd put the map up here once again for us, a little different map than I showed you before, but the same area. As we follow them, they come out of Ramses, and they go across the, the Sea of Reeds, and they travel down to Mount Sinai. This is the traditional southern location of Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is. Some people have a northern route. Some people put it even over here, and but this is the majority position, and I'm fine with it. Geography doesn't interest me that much, I'm afraid. But we're going to take the traditional position of Mount Sinai being here. And then when they leave Mount Sinai, they travel up to Ezion Geber, and then Kadesh Barnea, and then finally they enter up this way when they're moving into the land at the end of the book of Numbers. So from Exodus, lots of Leviticus and Numbers here, and then when they leave, they follow this route, and we get up here by the, we get, by the time we get to the end of Numbers. That's the geography on the map. Now, here is, once again, the outline from Charles Swindoll when he was doing his Old Testament survey. 
And he goes with the three-part outline for the book. He's got the key word there is the wilderness. The theme is the price of disbelief and disobedience. And so you see here the time. You've got 20 days at the first nine chapters at Mount Sinai. Several months as they travel to Kadesh Barnea, which we saw on the map. Kadesh Barnea traveling up here. And then we've got the 38 years of wilderness wanderings in chapters 15 through 36. And most of that 38 years is in 15 to 26. But then the last part here is them actually entering, starting to enter into the land and their initial conquests. So I thought I'd put that up there for you as well. All right, so back to the handout. The themes and the purposes, uh, the themes and the purpose, singular, the main purpose of the book. Now, the first thing you have there highlighted is the theme of obedience and disobedience. As we said, the obedience is, is something that is refreshing to see. It's kind of highlighted there in the first 10 chapters. You read through the first 10 chapters, there's really no disobedience to note, which is great. However, once we hit into chapter 11, you've got grumblings of the people. Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses' leadership in chapter 12. You've got the 12 spies bringing back a bad report and not believing that God can give them the land in chapters 13 and 14. You've got Korah's rebellion against Moses in chapter 16 and 17. You've got even Moses and Aaron not treating the Lord as holy in chapter 20, and they fail. You've got the fiery serpents set into the camp because of the grumblings and the complainings there in chapter 21. You've got the people joining themselves to the Baal of Peor in chapter 25. And so just one after another, it's boom, 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 disobedience, sadly, in the middle part of the book that leads to the wilderness generation's death. And then the second generation has to learn from their lessons and have a renewed obedience. So that's why you see there chapters 1 through 10 are obedience, chapters 11 through 25 are disobedience, and then chapters 26 to 36 are renewed obedience. Order, disorder, reorder kind of outline there. Now I want you to also look at Numbers chapter 7 verse 89. That's a long chapter, isn't it? 89 verses. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 7 here. And this theme of obedience is, of course, based upon the idea that God is speaking, that God is leading, that God is commanding, and that you can obey him because he is present as the king, so to speak, of his people. And you want to obey your king. And so there in chapter 7, verse 89, it's got a great summary of God speaking through Moses. It says, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. The voice of God speaking from the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat on top of the ark. And so Moses would enter in and have that face-to-face conversation, so to speak, with the Lord. And that's why then throughout the book, it says, and he spoke. You notice chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And then verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And you come down to verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. So picture Moses going in to talk with the Lord. Moses hears what God says. He writes it down. He tells it to the people. That's the book of Numbers. And he spoke is a great title for the book of Numbers, or 
in the wilderness. But I think, I, and he spoke is probably my favorite. So if you go back to the handout and the theme of obedience, I want you to look at a few examples of obedience. You can write some of these down if you like. Come to Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. I try to give you some space on your handout to make notes and write things down. Keep you active and engaged here. Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. Somebody want to read that verse out loud for the group? Yep, so they're not going to see the land. None of the men who have, were that generation that saw everything that God did and they experienced all of God's faithfulness and all of God's power and all of God's deliverance and yet they continued to not trust in God but to put him to the test. So listen to this. God can test the people and that's what God is doing here in the wilderness. He's testing them to see whether or not they're going to be faithful. But it's wrong for the people to test God. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. How come God can test us, but we can't test God? And the Bible commands us not to test the Lord our God. Well, it's because the Lord has already proven himself. This generation, they already saw the Lord's power. They already experienced the Lord's faithfulness. And they were supposed to have learned the lesson already that God is faithful. He was faithful to his covenant to Abraham, faithful to his covenant to Isaac and Jacob, and, and he's been faithful to do everything he promised. And so to put him to the test after he's already proven himself is just unbelief. But the people of Israel have not proven themselves. And so they need to be put to the test to show whether or not they are going to be faithful. And this is an important idea for us. God puts us through tests in our lives to find out whether or not we've learned the lesson to trust in him. When you have difficulty, when you have hardship, when it doesn't seem like God is providing for you, are you quick to grumble and complain? Or are you full of peace and joy in your heart? When bad things happen to you and your family, are you quick to grumble against the Lord and say, God, what are you doing? Or do you say, well, I'm sure God has a good reason for this. I'm trusting that God's got a good outcome. I've got peace in my heart. I've got joy. I'm trusting in God. And so God will test you to find out whether or not you've learned how to trust him. And if you haven't learned how to trust him, that's your fault. You're a fool for not trusting the one who has proven himself to be trustworthy thousands of times throughout history and hundreds of times probably in your life. So let's learn the lesson in the wilderness to not put the Lord our God to the test like this generation None of those men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. So to put the Lord to the test is not obeying his voice and it's despising him. He has demonstrated his trustworthiness and his faithfulness. So, that's an important idea. Also, come with me to chapter 25, verse 3. So we come to the beginning of chapter 25. This is the last part of the disorder before we get to the reordering in chapter 26. And sadly, it's the first time that Israel goes after Baal. And this is going to become a recurring theme as we continue throughout the rest of the Old Testament that Israel is going to keep on going after Baal. The Baals, there's more than one. This is the Baal of Peor. So, while Israel lived in Shittim, there in verse 1, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Hey, come to our church. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord, of course, then punishes them in fierce anger, as it says in verse 4. And the leaders die and then Phineas shows zeal and he kills someone who is bringing a Midianite woman as his new wife, forming this connection with the people of the Midianites and also with their god, the Baal of Peor. So important to note the idolatry, the syncretism that is happening here in chapter 25 that's going to continue to plague the people of Israel, not only in numbers, but throughout their early history until they finally learned to stop worshiping the Baals. This is something Elijah is going to be dealing with uh, almost 700 years from what's happening here. So an important thing to note here, the first use of Baal in the Bible. It's the first time Baal is mentioned. Also, I want you to go back to Numbers chapter 15 here while we're talking about disobedience. Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. As I said And we've uh, emphasized the Sabbath is an important element, an important theme in the Torah. The Sabbath laws, and there were multiple Sabbath laws, not just the seventh day, but the seventh day Sabbath law, the one that was part of the Ten Commandments, this is the sign of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with the people of Israel. And so to not observe the Sabbath for the people of Israel would be like a Jewish person not circumcising their child. It's like saying, I don't want to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. I don't trust in the God of Abraham. I don't trust in the promises of Abraham. And so keeping the Sabbath was what was going to mark the people of Israel as being the covenant people of God through the Sinaitic covenant. And so here we have a case, a case law. Uh, what is that called? Uh, casuistic law or something like that. It's case law. I'm not a very good lawyer. Numbers chapter 15, verse 32 says, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Like, oh, you're under guard, you're in prison. You were gathering sticks. Oh, terrible. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So it might not seem like a big deal to us to gather sticks on Saturday, but you've got to always look at things in their context, not our context. We don't judge things that happened back then by our standards and our context now. We judge things in their own context. So you've got to go back, put yourself there in the wilderness with the people of Israel and recognize that the God of the universe has created a nation from a man and a woman who were not able to have children. He's brought them out of slavery. He's entered into a special covenant with them. And he's provided for them everything that they need. And he just says, I want you to keep my Sabbath. I want you to not do any work on the seventh day to show that you are trusting in me and that you are my people and that you're going to obey me. And so for a man to say, eh, I don't really care about the Sabbath. I'm going to go out and work on the Sabbath. This is an act of treason against a king. If we had a, a king who was good and loving and kind and faithful and generous, and he just gave the command, here's how I want you to show that you're my people, that I'm your king, just do this one thing, don't work on Saturday, 
and take a day of rest. And for someone to go out and say, no, I think I'll keep on working. You've got to look at it in that context. He wasn't put to death for gathering sticks. He was put to death for thumbing his nose at the king. And you don't do that. A Sabbath breaker was executed there in chapter 15. So you see, the disobedience, the rebellion, and the penalty for that is death. A constant theme throughout the Bible. Now, also, chapter 16 is one that you'd want to mark and highlight. It's a great chapter to read about the rebellion of Korah along with Dathan and Abiram and many of the leading men of Israel. It says there in verse 2, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they all assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so here... They're not rebelling against God's command of the Sabbath, but they're rebelling against the leadership that God has appointed. Did God appear in a burning bush to Korah or Dathan or Abiram? Did God say, you're going to be my prophet? Did God come to these men and say, hey, I'm choosing you to be the high priest? No. And they didn't have the faith to believe that God had actually done that And they allowed their own deceptive hearts to tell themselves, Moses and Aaron are appointing themselves. They're the ones that are raising themselves up. And they believed it. And they got all these other men to believe it because of their own sinful deceit in their heart. And so this is also a warning to us that you don't rebel against the leadership that God has appointed in his work today. If we were to defile the Lord's table... The penalty for that is death. Because the Lord's table is the the sign of the covenant that he's given to us in the new covenant. If we were to come and eat of the Lord's table and have disrespect in our hearts and unrepentant sin, well, God should judge us for that. But if you come to church and you say, well, I don't have to listen to the pastor, I don't have to listen to the elders, you know, they're just arrogant, they think they know everything, and who put them in charge? I mean, we just voted them in and we can vote them out. If you despise the ones whom God has called to shepherd and lead the people, you're not rejecting me or the elders, you're rejecting God. And so if a pastor and elder comes to you and says, hey, this is what we think God wants you to do, this is what the word of God says, and you just blow it off, you're not blowing off me, you're blowing off God. And there will be judgment for that. So important to read these things in their context, and yet, to make the application to the present day so that we learn from the mistakes of Israel. We don't repeat their mistakes and allow our hearts to deceive us and say, oh, you know, just self-appointed people out there, who cares what they say? Uh, God is at work in the world. God is building the church. I didn't call myself to be a pastor. God called me to be a pastor. And God appointed me as a pastor through this congregation. And the elders are, are the same. Elders, pastors, two words for the same thing. Um... So be careful in your heart that you don't become like the world around you. Be conformed to the world and think, I'm my own authority. No one's in charge of me. Uh, No, you're not your own authority. God has set up the authorities. He set up the governing authorities. He set the church authorities. He set the family authorities. You obey the authorities or you are in rebellion against God. There's no other way to, to look at it. So the authorities aren't going to be perfect. Moses and Aaron, they screw up and uh, they get the penalty of death 
for their sin as well. And they don't get to go into the Holy Land as we see in chapter 20. Come over to chapter 20. That's a really interesting account here. And now the people, you guys just got warned in chapter 16. Now Jerry and I and the elders and uh, the other Jerry are going to get our warning. So once again, God tests the people. There's no water for the congregation in verse 2. Why didn't God just have water? Why does he have times where he's got no water for the people? It's to test them. Will they trust me? So the people assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses. What else is new? Behold, would that we had perished when we had come out. Why have you brought the assembly into the wilderness that we should die here from thirst? And on and on. And so Moses is fed up with it. He's tired of it. And God says in verse 7, Take the staff, and verse 8, and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And this is similar to what he did before when he struck the rock. But this time he says, just tell the rock, speak to the rock. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So far, so good. But, verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Uh, We bring water for you out of this rock? Are we forgetting who is bringing water out of the rock? I think so. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff. So here he's self-righteous, he's tired, and he's saying, you know, I've done all this, and he's not giving the glory to God, is the one who who is bringing water out of the rock for the people. And so water comes out, even when he strikes it. Even though he disobeyed God, God still provides for the people because of God's faithfulness. Moses, not faithful. God, faithful. And so the congregation drank in their livestock. But, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. God shows himself holy, shows himself faithful, but Moses and Aaron did not treat God as holy because they disobeyed his command. They'd gotten frustrated. They'd gotten self-righteous. So, elders, be careful. Dealing with sheep and they're rebellious and disobedient and failing, don't get to the point where you're like, well, I'm so much better than these people and I wish that they would all be more like me. We start thinking like that, you're in trouble and you're not honoring the Lord anymore and recognizing that, that we are sinners. We need to deal gently with those who are sinners and give glory to God for any obedience that we do have and follow his commands exactly. Don't stray from what God tells us to do for any reason. All right, so there's a lot that you could preach on here and I get preaching and that means we don't get through all of our handout. But let's go on to the second major theme here in the book, the blessing and the curse. And for that, go to chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. Here we are in the good part of Numbers, where the people are being obedient, and there's order among the people. God is establishing the order. And you come down to the end of chapter 6, and verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses. There we have, God spoke, and he spoke. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. 
So the blessing here. And of course the blessing and the curse, you remember, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. And even before that, if you want to go back to the Noahic covenant, where God blessed Noah and his descendants and said, be fruitful and multiply, and going all the way back to Adam with God blessing Adam and Eve, being be fruitful and multiply. Well, here the blessing of God resting on the people of Israel through the Levitical, the Aaronic blessing that God gives here for the priests to put God's name and God's blessing upon the people. And it's a great passage. It's a good blessing to memorize good blessing for fathers to bless their kids with, for pastors to bless their church with, for all who are in spiritual leadership to give a blessing to those who are God's people. And then also the blessing you see in chapters 23 and 24. Come with me to Numbers 23 and 24. And here you've got fascinating passage about Balaam. And of course, you know about Balaam because of his talking donkey, but that's really not the main point of chapters 23 and 24. It is uh, the funnest part, but it's not the most important part. And the most important part of uh, Balaam is the blessing that God gives to the people of Israel through this Gentile prophet. Exactly what is the nature of his prophecy and how are we supposed to think of him? kind of complicated, and that's one of the interpretive issues that we'll get to. But I just want you to see here all of the blessings that God gives to Israel through the mouth of Balaam. You can see them in the poetry form. There's a different structure of the text in the Bible for the poetry from the narrative section. And so you see there's like seven oracles here of Balaam, which are blessings upon God's people Israel, and their victory over the other nations around them. So the blessing and the curse. The the curse because of their disobedience, dying in the wilderness, but the blessing still shines through in the priestly blessing and the Balaam oracles, bringing us back to God's promise to Israel that he will bless them. All right, so then the third theme on the handout there is the second generation. They learn the lessons from the first generation. And so, in the wilderness, Yahweh shows his patience. There's a renewed obedience of Israel, and chapters 20 through 36 are all about that. Then chapters 20 through 36 are all about that 40th year, where now they're moving forward with the second generation. And as I said, the the numbers are almost the same in the second census. You've got those on the handout, 603,550 in the first generation, 601,730 in the second generation, so almost equal numbers there, slightly fewer. Then the final theme is the land, and I put down the verses and the chapters that really focus on the land, and this of course goes back to Genesis chapter 12, because God promised the people of Israel that not only would he bless them, but he would also give them the land that he was promising to them. Abram, go from your country to the land that I will show you. And so the land here is a, is a key idea, especially when you get into the later chapters. You see chapter 32, chapter 33, and chapters 34 to 36 are the, the people entering into the land and starting to take possession and inheritance already in that second generation in the book of Numbers. All right, so the purpose statement. The purpose is the failure of Israel to obey Yahweh, their God, in faith, obedience comes from faith, trusting in him, brought his discipline by death. 
but it did not frustrate God's ultimate purpose to bless Israel with the gift of the land. Oh, uh, I don't know why I have the ultimate king there on the end of that. You can cross that off. Uh, Something didn't get edited properly. The gift of the land, period. Or maybe it should say, and the ultimate king. Yeah, I think that was, I think there's a missing and there. So you could either cross it off or put an and in there. So he's going to give them the land, and he also promises the ultimate king, and that's part of the oracles that Balaam talks about, the coming future king among the people of Israel. All right, so let's take a brief look then at the interpretive issues in the book of Numbers. Number one is the numbers themselves. Because the liberals who don't believe in the historical reliability of the Bible say, well, these numbers are just religious propaganda. Israel never really wandered in the wilderness anyway because you can't have millions of people wandering in the wilderness. It's just not possible to to sustain life out there. And so they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe Israel was in the wilderness. They don't believe these numbers are historically accurate. And they provide other arguments against these numbers. Now, these are agreed large numbers. You've got 600,000 fighting men. That could be almost 3 million people among the people of Israel by the time you count the women and the children. But you've got you know, about 3 million people here. And when you look at the evidence that we have of what population sizes were like in Egypt and in Canaan during this time period, it doesn't seem like Israel would have that many people at this time. It seems like an unusually high number. And I'll grant that. The archaeological evidence does seem to provide some difficulty in understanding this many Israelites at this time. However, it's not an impossibility. And the text is very clear that that's why the traditional position, letter B there, is that these are actual numbers. They're not an error. They're not symbolic. They're not religious propaganda. These are the actual numbers. And When you read the text, it doesn't come across as symbolic or anything like that. It just reads a a regular census with real numbers. So that's the right way to read it and understand it. And this goes along with what God promised the people of Israel, that he would multiply them greatly. And this is why the Egyptians feared the people of Israel, is that they had grown to such a large size of three million people. This was a, a mighty people at that time period. Now, There are certain verses in the Bible that then would indicate that, well, the people of Israel were not such a mighty people. They were a smaller people. God says in Deuteronomy, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of nations. I chose you because you were the least of nations. And so people say, well, if they're the least of nations, they wouldn't have three million people because that makes them a great and mighty nation. Well, God chose them when they were the least of nations, when they were just 70 people or when Abraham was just childless. God chose them then when they were the least of nations. So it's a a matter of understanding what God meant in Deuteronomy 7.7 when he says, you are the least of nations. So you have the liberal position, you have the traditional believing position, and then you've got the neo-evangelical compromise positions, and there's a lot of them. So whenever the liberals say something is impossible in the Bible, you've got some fundamentalists like me who say, not impossible, I just believe what the Bible says. You liberals can go do your thing. But then you've got the neo-evangelicals who want to please the liberals, and they want to please the conservatives, and they want to look like they believe the Bible, but they also want to appear intelligent to the world. And so they come up with all these reasons why the, the numbers might not be actual historical numbers. And so that's what we have here. The main excuse, if I could you know, be so so bold, 
of the neo-evangelicals for these numbers is to say that the word for thousand, Aleph, doesn't actually mean a thousand, but that it means like a clan or a chief or a military unit or something like that. And so if you can change the number thousand to something else, then you can work with it to make it much more realistic according to the, the liberals' view. Others have said, no, these numbers actually got misplaced, and these would be a census from like the time of David, when David numbered the people, and then they just kind of like transposed them back here because they didn't have the numbers and they just used those numbers from a future time period. That's uh, one thing that has been a compromised position to say why the numbers are so big in numbers. Another is that it's a textual corruption, that somewhere along the line a scribe made a mistake and the numbers got changed to larger numbers. And the problem with that, of course, is that there's multiple times where the numbers are given and you wouldn't have the same mistake being made throughout the entire book. Uh, you'd have it maybe in one spot. And then the uh, fourth position I have on there is that this is an older numbering system that is no longer used. So like back in Moses' time, they had a different numbering system than what they had when you come later in the Bible, and so we didn't understand Moses' numbers and misread them. That's uh, one explanation for these numbers. And then uh, another is that it's hyperbole, that ancient nations just gave inflated numbers, and it was kind of understood and a given that when a nation told you how many people they had, that they were exaggerating. And so we read the Bible in its historical context, and exaggeration was a part of its historical context, so these numbers are exaggerated because the Bible speaks in its own culture and its own time period. This was acceptable back then. We're not meant to take these numbers literally, but hyperbolically. And then finally, uh, some people say, well, they're just symbolic uh, of a, a large army or something like that. So all of those are bad excuses to try to appease the liberals and I don't think if you actually look at the evidence, any of these will hold up. And instead, we should just understand the numbers as literal numbers. Israel had 600,000 fighting men during the time of Moses. All right, I spent too much time on that. The jealousy ordeal in chapter 5 is a fascinating passage. If you have questions about the jealousy ordeal, you can, you can talk with me about it. If you read it and you're like, what is this about? and then there's different ways of understanding that. But there's a great article on it on gotquestions.org, so I'd recommend some of that for interpretive issues. If I don't have time to cover it, go to gotquestions.org, and their answer is usually pretty much in accord with what I would say. It saves me time, and uh, it's convenient for you. So we'll use the tools we have. Number three, what do we make of Balaam? Is he a true prophet? Is he a false prophet? Is he somewhere in between? He talks about Yahweh, my God, in Numbers 22:18, which seems a little strange coming from a non-Israelite. How does he know Yahweh? Why is Yahweh his God? He seems to have a good reputation among the people. Whoever he blesses is blessed, and whoever is cursed is cursed. And apparently, he it was someone who had a really good reputation as speaking the truth and having actual conversations with God. And he, he goes and talks to God, and God talks to him, and you can read about it, and it's like, well... Sounds like a prophet of Yahweh to me. And uh, he says, I'm not going to say anything but what God tells me to say. And that sounds like a prophet too. But the New Testament refers to him as a false prophet. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Jude verse 11, Revelation uh, compares him to a false prophet, or com compares a false teacher to, to Balaam. Also, if you look later in Numbers chapter 31, and then Deuteronomy chapter 23, you've got this negative portrayal of Balaam there 
kind of paints him as a false prophet. And so some people have said, well, the Bible's kind of neutral, actually, or it presents a complicated picture of Balaam. And you can see some of that in the references that I gave you. My bottom line is, is that Balaam was a diviner. The word divination is used several times to talk about his method. And that Yahweh did sometimes speak to this diviner. We don't know if this diviner Balaam would talk to other gods, you know, which would actually be demons, right? Or if he only spoke to Yahweh or sought counsel from Yahweh. But the bottom line is that Balaam is a false prophet, not because he spoke words that are false, but because he was a man who pursued his own interests above the interests of God. That's what we see, the negative portrayal of him in Second Peter, Jude, and the other passages there, is that not that he lied, not that he said anything that was untrue, but that he sought after his own prophet. And so a diviner, a, a prophet like Balaam, his business depended upon him being accurate, him speaking the truth. And so he didn't speak the truth and accurate because he loved God. He spoke the truth and was accurate because his business depended upon his integrity. And there's a difference there. And so Balaam is given to us in Scripture as a man who did receive revelation from God, but who used that privilege that God gave him in order to pursue his own pride and his own money. And that's uh, the complicated picture of Balaam. All right, so then... The discussion questions, again, we haven't had time to discuss them, so this is great to take home and discuss with your family. What was the purpose of the wilderness wanderings? What did we learn from Balaam? What are the testing themes in the Bible? Does he test us, and how do we respond to God's testing? And then look for a passage that has to do with the holiness of God, the need to obey Yahweh, the tragedy of disobedience, and Yahweh's faithfulness to his covenant. And then finally, what did Stephen mean when he said that Israel turned back to Egypt in their hearts in Acts chapter 7, verse 39? So some great follow-up study that you can do on your own and discuss with your family. That is the book of Numbers, or probably better, the book of And He Spoke. I know it's not as catchy, but uh, it really does present the idea. And He Spoke. That's where we are in the Torah.